Welcome to the DTB podcast for July 2020, volume 58, number seven. My name is David Zachary and I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. So we have another one of our socially distant podcasts. Uh, we're recording this at the beginning of June. I'm at home. James, are you at home or in the surgery? Yes, I'm, I'm in sunny Newbury. Yes, uh, hopefully not too much noise and sounds of the rest of the family who are here. And Letitia is recording this from her home in London and filtering out any extraneous sounds. Um, so James, how's your week been? How is general practice? Well, it's we live in exciting times or interesting times as the Chinese proverb goes. I, uh, it's been an interesting week because we've been very fleet of foot, I think, in general practice. We've managed to move away from face-to-face -face consultations and do a lot of work now with video and telephone consultations. But actually in the last week, we've had no new cases of COVID in West Berkshire. And we're now seeing a lot more complicated stuff, mental health illness, patients with chronic disease, perhaps with deterioration in their heart failure or their renal failure, which, which is quite hard to do in a way remotely with telephones. So we're seeing a lot more patients and that takes time because of the PPE issues and making sure that we keep them safe. Excellent. Okay, well, let's talk about uh, this month's issue. Let's start with the editorial. This month's written by Joanna Gerling. What's this one about? So this is actually a really interesting editorial for two reasons, I think. It's about using aspirin in pregnancy and uh, NICE produced guidance back in February 2019 where they talked about those women who should be taking a small dose of aspirin, 75 milligrams daily, and, and who they should be. And unfortunately, like a lot of nice guidance, who that cohort should be is not something that you can keep in your head. You really do need to have to have it down on paper. And what uh, Joanne Gerling, I think, has very clearly um, shown in her editorial is that at the moment, not enough women are taking aspirin. There's a big shortfall in the numbers that should. And we know that in certain populations of women, if you take aspirin during pregnancy in the first 12 weeks, you reduce the risk of preeclampsia, you reduce the risk of preterm births, you reduce fetal growth restriction, and you reduce the evidence of stillbirths. So this is important stuff. But as she points out, the problem we've got at the moment is that women now very often don't come and see us as GPs. They go to their midwife at 10 weeks. If the midwife feels they're in that cohort that needs aspirin, the midwife can't prescribe it. They can't buy it from the pharmacists because it's off-label for that indication. So they need to go to the GP and that creates a whole string of issues that then perhaps leads to a delay in them taking it. And I think what Joanna quite rightly is saying is that, come on folks, it can't be beyond the wit of man to actually sort this out, produce some sort of way of being a, enabling women to buy this over the counter when they're pregnant for that at-risk group. Yeah, yes, because it seems it seemed to be that it was organisational issues as much as anything that were preventing women from accessing aspirin when they needed it. Midwives couldn't give it out. And as you say, pharmacists couldn't sell it. Um, and so, yes, as you say, there must be a better way of doing it. Exactly. And I think one of the things that, and there's a bit of a theme actually in this podcast, I think one of the things that I've thought about is actually women, we need to be more clever at medication reviews and thinking about pregnancy in general and we're going to obviously talk about this a bit more in, in one of the articles we've we've got in in this month's podcast because i think actually the more i think about it as soon as a woman 
says she's considering getting pregnant, we ought to be thinking medication, not just what they're taking, but also what they should be taking as well. And I think you know that's that's something for us and perhaps for the new clinical pharmacists working in general practice to really think about actually is there a role here for us to consider that as part of our medication reviews. Excellent. And what, what struck me about the um, editorial as well, I mean, she provides a helpful reminder of those difficult risk factors that you can't hold in your head as to who should be targeted for aspirin during pregnancy. But the interesting figure that she quotes of uptake, okay, it's a small sample size, but being as low as 50% in women who should be taking it. That doesn't surprise me at all. It really doesn't. I think this, I, I, I may be wrong, but I think when this nice guidance came out, a lot of acute trusts sort of either had their own guidance or they were a bit iffy about this. So I think there was a little bit of hesitation in the system, if you like, regarding implementing it. So I think for a lot of GPs, it's well worth your while, actually, look at our article or, or go online and look at the nice guidance and just remind yourself and you really need to write this down because as you say you know it's one of those menus where you can take one from one list or two from another and it, it is it is the sort of list you cannot keep in your head excellent thank you very much uh, and moving on to uh, what we've got this month as a forum article and we're very grateful to margaret mccartney for writing this piece for us James, do you want to say a bit about it? Yes, I say I, I'm equally delighted that Margaret wasn't uh, too busy enough to, to write this because uh, she is quite a, a guru of, of evidence-based medicine. And it's a really useful article that reminds us that in this time of great instability with pandemics, there's a real drive to just do something because it, to be seen to act somehow feels better than sort of inaction. And yet, as she quite rightly points out, you know, history is stuffed full of interventions like bed rest for back pain and prone sleeping for babies, vitamin A supplements to prevent cancer, you know, full of things which actually created more harm than good. And I think, you know, what she very nicely puts through here is how important it is that we do evidence-based medicine throughout this pandemic and that actually she points out, for example, that WHO have worked really hard with their planning to ensure that proper trials have been set up and I think uh, she mentions about a thousand trials have been set up by the WHO throughout the world during this pandemic and of course we've got three big ones in the UK as well so I think it's just a, a really useful reminder that pandemics can be frightening difficult but actually annexing the scientific method is is far far worse thing to do. And I particularly like the quote from Andre Khalil's JAMA article when he says that when we use an unproven treatment as a last resort, we wrongly assume that it has more benefits or that the benefits are more likely than, than the harms. And that's, that's you know, typically what you see, isn't it? When, when you've got nothing else to do, you go for something in the hope that it'll do something, but actually more often than not, it may be harmful. I, I think it's, it's a real telling quote of our times. And I think together with the, the cancer treatment sort of, ethos at the moment it's something which you know you really have to be very mindful of if if you're going down that line with you know last resort cancer treatments as well and she also picks up on the issue of you know, this isn't just drug treatments we should apply the same rigor to non-drug interventions and dare we mention it you know, face masks are in there and she talks about doing research on those very timely, very timely this, the face mask issue. And she talks about hydroxychloroquine as well. Yeah, interesting times. And uh, I think 
if, if one good thing comes out of this pandemic, I hope it's that we learn how to deal with pandemics in the future. Not necessarily, you know, how to treat the virus, but how you treat the pandemic, how, what you do, yeah, because I think we're all, you know, learning as we go along at the moment. And it's worth saying this article is free to access um, from our website, so just go, go and have a read. Okay, and on the same pandemic theme, we've got a, a select item as well that, that, that looks at latest updated advice. We t touched on this a few weeks or a few issues ago on using ibuprofen to manage symptoms of COVID. There was a concern that ibuprofen may either increase your risk of contracting the disease or worsening the disease. At the time, people were cautious and saying, don't use it or use, use other things first. So now the UK Commission on Human Medicines have looked at the evidence and, and what was their view? <laughs> well, it's in at the moment. I mean, it is a fascinating story, isn't it? I mean, I think the issue with ibuprofen was first raised in France, wasn't it, I think? And then in early, well, middle of March, I think it was, um, the MHRA issued a warning from Professor Stephen Paris, where he sort of said, in the absence of evidence, actually, I think you should stop using ibuprofen. And then actually, a day later, the European Medicines Agency had a press release that also sort of said there was no scientific evidence to link ibuprofen to worsening symptoms of COVID, but sort of sat on the fence. And, and now the Commission on Human Medicines has finally said, well, actually, okay, we think it's okay. Um, and I don't know whether that's, that's because there's been more evidence or whether there's just been this sort of fence hopping one way and then the other. So yes, here we are. So it, it's okay to use ibuprofen, folks. And what was, I thought was interesting is that both NICE and NHS England agreed with it, but said actually it comes back to thinking about all the options and use your uh, clinical nows to decide on the, what's got the most benefit and the least harms. Now, for me, for most people, that's likely to be paracetamol. Um, I don't know what you think. Yeah, I, I, it's the whole issue of the paracetamol and ibuprofen sort of treatment options for people that are, are acutely ill. It's been fascinating to watch because I think we went through a phase where parents would phone up out of hours doctors to say my child has still got a fever after having paracetamol and they would say, well, Try, try taking ibuprofen and we had this sort of crazy situation where people were taking a dose of one and the dose of another and I think one of the things that come out of all this is that actually look it's not always great to treat it you know treat the person if the person is fine you don't necessarily need to be just treating the fever and I think that's one of the things that's that's coming out of this is that all therapeutics has adverse events and actually what you must make sure you're doing is actually giving the patient some benefit. And I think I read somewhere along the line that the fever itself may actually be beneficial. There, you, there's some fascinating stuff. That, there's been a study on malaria that definitely shows that patients who uh, were given antipyretics had longer clearance time of parasites from their bloodstream. And I think there was another study back in the BMJ on just fevers in general. But it, you're right. I think this is an area where the future might consider us giving paracetamol as much as they look down on, on you know, in the past people using leeches who knows so you don't need to treat every fever is the bottom line you don't excellent well i'm sure we'll come back to this one again um it's bound to go bound to go around the boy a couple more times before it's sorted but let's move on to our main article and just a, a 
kind of quick overview. It's one of our pregnancy or prescribing for pregnancy series. This one focuses on women with epilepsy. Key issues? Yeah, key issues is that A, this is actually more common than you think. About one in a hundred pregnancies, um, the woman has epilepsy. So this is not uncommon. And I think the big issues around this, of course, are the significant concerns about the anti-epileptic medication, particularly valproate, but actually the others as well. And the need to really, as I said earlier with the editorial, to think about pregnancy before you're even thinking about pregnancy, if that makes any sense, because getting this right before you're pregnant is so important, not just the type of drugs that are used, but also making sure that women understand that stopping their medication suddenly, for example, because they find themselves pregnant is the worst thing they could do. So this is a really, it's, I have to say, I've been so impressed with the whole pregnancy and therapeutics reviews that we've done, um, because they've really been incredibly comprehensive in how they've looked at things. And this is such a useful article for GPs, clinical pharmacists, medwives, obstetricians. It's really worth reading because it's just got everything you need to know and it's got some really useful resources as well particularly i think the medicinesinpregnancy.org website which gives you information about therapeutics and pregnancy and a lot of it seems to be back to the basics of, of planning and liaison with specialists to manage things as soon as as soon as you know that somebody is planning or is is pregnant Absolutely. And I think, I think, to be honest, the valproate issue has brought this front and centre in, in a way that perhaps it hasn't in the past. So the new pregnancy protection programme, certainly, you know, we, we are inundated as GPs with checks to make sure that we're doing that, which is absolutely the right thing. But also it's reminding us constantly, hang on, you know, here's a young girl, she's now been diagnosed with epilepsy. Are we thinking about her future fertility? And are we talking to her now about actually what that means so if she finds herself pregnant she's not going to suddenly worry unnecessarily about the risk of malformations or you know all those things which which actually can aggravate the pregnancy and make it more at risk and that whole issue of, of prescribing valproate safely and all the requirements now for checking that the women have been counseled how's that going i think it is much better i think there's still a little bit of confusion about who is actually responsible for this so what we find is that we do get a lot of information through and then of course the neurologists who are prescribing these drugs actually are responsible for the pregnancy protection program and the various information leaflets that are needed so i think there is a little bit of confusion about where it really sits who is responsible well that's probably no bad thing at least everyone is being reminded of it but it, it's, it is good. And I think what's really good about this article is it reminds us that actually, you know, patients should take five milligrams of folate three months before conception. That actually, although the overall congenital malformation rate is double if you have epilepsy compared to someone who hasn't, it's still only one in 20 risk. So, you know, I think it's really useful to talk this through with women at a point before they even considering getting pregnant. So actually they're aware of all that and they are up to speed with it and it doesn't put the fear of God into them when they find they're pregnant. Very good, thank you very much. Uh, and finally this month, a case report, amiodrone and what happened? Yeah, so this is a case report of a 73 year old woman who was started on amiodrone and developed diffuse alveolar 
hemorrhages, which is uh, quite a rare complication of amiodarone. I have to say, amiodarone is one of those drugs that I put in the dirty category. It's, you know, if anyone falls sick and they're on amiodarone, it's amiodarone until proven otherwise. That's my motto. And whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But amiodarone, you know, it causes uh, lung side effects, neurological side effects, ophthalmic side effects, cutaneous side effects, hepatic side effects, and we all know about the thyroid side effects. So, um, you know, about 10 to 17% of uh, people get a lung adverse effect from amiodarone, and that's usually pulmonary interstitial pneumonitis. So they get sort of short of breath, and it's often after prolonged use. But this particular case uh, report is on someone who had diffuse alveolar hemorrhages, which is where you get quite sudden onset of shortness of breath, often with cough and hemoptysis, often in the first few days of starting amiodarone. And I guess that's what made it a more interesting uh, report to concentrate on, that it, it wasn't your traditional lung problem with, with amiodarone. This was something quite rare, because I, again, I looked it up in the SPC, it talks about it, but says it doesn't know how often it occurs. And the MHRA data, only one case of pulmonary alveolar hemorrhage reported out of 6,000 reactions since 1978. So not common, but uh, interesting. No, and as I say, what I like like about these case reports is they just remind you about the background to some of these drugs. So it's once again, it's worth a read just to remind ourselves about the adverse effects of amiodarone. And it's also that it's that timeliness, isn't it? You know, if someone starts getting very poorly three days after starting a drug, why isn't it the drug? You know, because interesting enough, in this case, they, you know, they stuffed her full of um antibiotics for a little while first before the penny drops so uh, you know i think it's it is a it is always fascinating just looking at reminding ourselves about some of the backgrounds to these drugs and that's why we chose to include this as a series within within dp okay thank you very much uh, thank you for listening to this podcast you can find all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com if you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving us a comment and a rating on the iTunes site. And you can find a link to the DTB podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast. Thank you very much. Go well and stay well. <laughs>